oil, gas, power production, those aren't bad things to me. And in fact, TXU isn't given credit for the leadership and the role that they played in creating a market for wind power. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dallenhauer. Today we are continuing our series of interviews on the TXU Coal Expansion and Buyout, which turns 10 years old this year. And if you haven't listened to the introduction episode of this series, I suggest you do because we'll be referencing it throughout this interview. On this interview, we're talking to Tom Stewart. Tom was Managing Director of Public Strategies, a public affairs company headquartered in Austin. To say PSI is a public relations firm is an oversimplification. It is an operation that that works with corporate clients to handle their challenges, and their strategy for doing so was born in political campaigns. To walk through the halls of PSI was to spot a who's who of top-tier political talent from both sides of the aisle. You saw veterans from the Clinton 92 campaign, the Bush 2000 race. I never got a chance to meet her, but former Texas Governor Ann Richards had a corner office on my floor. She passed away a few months after I joined the company in 2006. This was my first job after I left TV news, so I was assigned to the Media Intelligence Division. It was a glorified way of saying I grabbed news clippings, but I got to write up daily NSA-style intelligence briefings and was the client's go-to person for discussing trends in the media coverage. A few months into the job, I asked if I could eventually work for an energy client, and within two months, I was assigned to the TXU account. This was late 2006, and the company was in the middle of an attempt to gain support for the construction of a 11 coal-fired units in Texas. When the buyout happened in February 2007, I was embedded in the Austin office, and my colleagues were embedded in TXU's headquarters in Dallas. The buyers, KKR and TPG, had also retained services from public strategies in our Austin office, and I was aware that a buyout was going to go down before the Dallas team did, which made things a little awkward. Let's get back to Tom. Like many PSI talent, he began his career on the political side. He was press secretary for a U.S. Senate race in 96 and served as a manager of communications for Entergy. He joined PSI in 2000 and was there for about 13 years. Today, he serves as a media consultant and is executive director of Texas Charity Advocates, in Austin. I hadn't talked to Tom in almost 10 years when I called him one evening last February and pitched the idea for this episode to him. Once we had jogged each other's memories a little bit, we talked for about an hour. As I have said earlier in this series, I have asked many of my guests the same questions but have gotten very different answers. Tom Kleckner, last week's guest, was often in the same room as Tom Stewart, this week's guest. And you'll see how working as either an employee of a company or a consultant to a company can color things for you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tom Stewart. Tom, first question. When people asked you what you did for a living, how did you explain your work at Public Strategies? The easiest way was the same way that I tried to explain it to my mother, which is I help people say the right thing at the right time to the right audience. In my job, we help people communicate, communicate with the public. And when were you brought onto the TXU account? I believe it was 2005. 
Some people might be thinking, I'm sure a big corporation like TXU has a communication team that can handle anything that's thrown their way. Why would they need someone like PSI? They did. They had a very good communications team with very qualified and experienced people. They had gone through some reorganization. I believe initially when we were brought on board, it was to help supplement their team somewhat. And then secondarily, they had a couple of very hot issues, particularly on the retail side of their business and the way some things were handled. I wouldn't call it a full-blown crisis, but it was a hot and heavy issue. And so they were looking for some outside eyes to come in and help them on a particular issue that was of concern to them down in South Texas. So in 2006, TXU announced plans to build 11 coal plants in Texas, and there were some people that didn't like it, correct? Actually, when it was first announced, there was pretty broad-based support. The communities where the new facilities were going to go were very supportive throughout the process. And there was generally broad support for it from a business development standpoint, from a job standpoint, from a policy standpoint. It wasn't until later that year when then Mayor of Dallas, Laura Miller, suggested that she was going to put this on her agenda that the opposition really began to get some legs. Why do you think Laura Miller got so involved in this crusade, if you will, against these coal plants? I think she came at it clearly from the environmental perspective. That was an issue for her as mayor of a big city and and having to deal with air quality issues. You know, I mean, I take her at her word that her perspective was purely from the health and the environmental perspective. Bill White in Houston was also with Laura Miller against this. They were calling themselves the Clean Air Coalition. Do you think that this might have been a little bit of a blue state mayor versus red state governor dynamic? Sure. I think Mayor White later ran for governor. And I think he was in the process of positioning himself for that. Clearly, there's always politics involved in issues like this, and people take sides based on their politics, but also the public policy issues that they care about and that align with their politics. So I do think that there was some of that going on. And I think, Jay, and you may get into this later, but you know, you have to remember, too, where power prices were at the time. There were significant spikes in power prices. And so you had the retail electric utility companies like TXU Energy and others that were taking a beatdown on the prices that consumers were paying. And so as they were looking around for how do we impact that, you know, coal was a way to go at the time. To me, it was interesting about the issue is that you had consumer groups that were saying, hey, we need to do something on prices. And you had a big, you know, integrated electric utility company trying to address that with a lower cost fuel. And then you had other forces on the other side who were saying, no, this is an environmental issue and a health issue. And we're opposed to it. And that brings us to a good point, this idea that we were trying to have affordable power, that Texas at the time, this was before the financial crisis, and I think that really depressed the economy, but Texas was on the trajectory to run out of power at the end of the Audis. There was a severe blackout on April 17th, 2006. The coal plant expansion was announced three days later where you were. Was there any discussions about maybe this is when we need to announce 
this expansion right after a pretty scary moment. I believe if you go back and you actually read the announcement and subsequent communications by TXU Corp, that their viewpoint was, we've got a solution here. We can significantly expand the capacity of the market and address this blackout issue. We can do it with a lower price fuel that can help on the pricing front for consumers. And on top of that, we can install the newest, latest, maybe not the best, but the near best technology that actually reduces the emissions into the air. So from their perspective, they felt like they had a solid solution to several different problems that were facing the state at the time. You said they announced the plan. You felt that most local communities, at least, were on board. Laura Miller and that group got much louder. The environmental community jumped on it through the summer and I guess the fall. It just seemed almost like a pylon by the end of the year. Do you think TXU and maybe even PSI, the other consultants, do you think they anticipated that response against the coal plants? I know that I was of the opinion in late 2006, early 2007, that from an environmental standpoint, unless a a strong face was put to that movement, that normal groups that you saw play in that space here in Texas probably would not be able to advance their agenda very much. And they got that either through their work or a combination of their work and the fact that Mayor Miller at the time became involved and then subsequently Mayor Watt down in Houston, there really wasn't a public face to lead that agenda. Once they came on board, that began to change the dynamic. The environmental issue put a target on TXU's back, and that became a issue that bigger groups, more national groups like Environmental Defense Fund, it gave Environmental Defense Fund and others like that group leverage to go raise money and generate opposition. And as a result of that, TXU became the poster child for so-called dirty coal. And there were other companies out there in Texas that were also planning expansions. NRG, for instance. One of the things I noticed in a lot of the coverage is it almost seemed like TXU was being played as the bad guy, NRG, the good guy. Yeah, in a lot of the press coverage, and that's sort of the way it came off. I think if you go back, though, and you look, I mean, how much coal gasification do we actually have in the country now? The reality is, you look back, TXU was right on those issues. They were straightforward about it. At the time, it didn't play very well. They wanted the company to... To do more. And in fact, TXU isn't given credit for the leadership and the role that they played in creating a market for wind power. The reality is one of the biggest market makers for wind power in the state of Texas in the early days was TXU. Tom, take us back to those days. I remember I first visited, it was essentially a war room up there in Dallas at TXU, but you were there every single day. What was a typical day like embedded with the TXU team during the period when they were working to assure the public that the expansion was a good idea? Day to day, it was boring, but there were times when things would heat up when it could get very exciting and very intense. I remember the announcement that I had encouraged them to sort of do a whirlwind tour of Texas. It was a bit of a take on a political campaign in the sense that you make your formal announcement in one spot and then you hit media markets all across the state. We probably hit five, six media markets that day. So a day like that was very intense and exciting. On a day-to-day basis, it was plotting and thinking and monitoring and watching to see who was going to hit you next. (laughs) And this is probably a little bit of inside baseball, but I think it's interesting that PSI, what I think they really brought to the communications model was treating business communications like a political campaign. 
Well, and that was part of the PSI model. You know, a lot of the people that came to public strategies were either people who came out of the political campaign world or they came out of the media news world. The pitch was we use the tools and the techniques of a political campaign and we apply those against the public issues that you face as a business. And that model proven pretty darn successful. Do you think the opposition especially the environmental groups in particular, had an easier time with the media than a big company like TXU getting their messages across? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a joke I mean, to ask it, but expand on that. I mean, why do you think that is? I've seen it happen, and not just in this case, but in other situations that I've been involved in where a company like TXU or pick one, it doesn't matter, is held to a little bit different standard than, say, Jay, who can just offer his opinion. And there does not necessarily have to be a factual basis to back that opinion up. Whereas you have a company, it has to be a fact based communications, and oftentimes that requires an explanation that is longer than a 10-second soundbite. In one of my other episodes of this podcast, one of the things I posited was that the media really sets up what I would call a victim status or a David and Goliath dynamic. And it's not just this company. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think the media really tries to set things up as big guy versus little guy? Absolutely. It's the best story in the world, right? And we all like that story. I think it's just part of our nature to like the underdog and pull for the underdog. And if you can tell that story in a compelling way, you can put eyeballs on your story. And so I think the media like that. Now, having said that, the media today is very different than what it was 10 years ago. I'm a journalism major. And one of the things I would say is this David and Goliath dynamic, I consider that lazy journalism. Oh, man. Yes and it's, no. It, it oversimplifies is what I'm saying. Oftentimes it does. It is what it is, but you're held to a different standard. Not necessarily sure you can put that in a 140-character tweet. Your communications have to be genuine, and they have to speak to the legitimate concerns of the audience that you're trying to communicate with. And so to the extent that you can communicate and speak like and talk like and write like a real human being who's talking to another human being, the better off you're going to be. For some reason, that is always a challenge for big companies. I talked a little bit in my path episode about hired gun lobbyists and the disconnect that they may have with a cause in our capacity at PSI. Did you feel like a hired gun? Did you truly in your heart of heart believes in the message? I'm sure you've done a lot of soul searching over the years about your role in a company like that, where you're asked to come in, defend a company line. Where's the line drawn there, Tom? my personal perspective, I've never run into a problem with a client where my personal views differed from the client's views. And in this particular case, I came at it from a consumer cost standpoint. I recognize the environmental and the health issues, but as I understood it and as I read the information on this particular initiative, I was satisfied that they could do what they were planning to do, increase capacity particularly using coal, and they could do it in a way that not only do it in a way that would actually reduce emissions for the state. I would have been fine because from my own personal perspective, I felt like price was the more dominating issue because people were paying 13, 14, 15 cents a kilowatt hour. And it gets hot in Texas and we have to run the air conditioning a lot. If we were going to continue to see those kinds of prices, then what was the state going to do to try to help people who were struggling? 
Let's get back to the buyout. We're now in February 2007. It's announced on a Friday. You're in Dallas, and we're not told about the buyout prior, even though some other people on the communication team knew about it. How did that feel? Were you taken by surprise? I knew something was up. I didn't know what was up, but I knew something was up. The scale of it was a bit surprising and a little bit awe-inspiring, really, from a business story standpoint. I was like, wow, this, this is big time. What do you need me to do now? One of the things you may remember was that happened Friday afternoon. We're ready to go spend the weekend. It's leaked. Without us getting into a whole lot of trouble here, what do you think happened there? The technique of pre-placing a big story like this is not unique to to this particular situation. I think if you go back and uh, look at any major business news story, that happens quite a bit. I talked to Tom Kleckner on the communication team. I also kind of got his side of the story. He said that after that was announced on Friday, he was told from his boss, don't answer your phones. He's getting lit up by Dallas Morning News. Reuters had to basically put the phone on silent, and it was painful not to have to answer the phone. I think the lady from Reuters, he said later, gave him a trophy for towing the company line. How do you think that went over with the media basically shutting down? Was that a good idea? It depends on the situation. Nobody in the media likes to get beat on a story, particularly a story that big. So, yeah, they don't like that. This is the most compelling part of all this that I found, Tom, when we were working on this was... After the buyout was announced, the buyers and existing guard at TXU reversed positions on a few of the positions they had fought for for about a year. Now, that included the dire need to build 11 coal-fired units. The buyers were now going to build only three. And TXU's position on clean coal gasification technology, originally they had said it wasn't in their interest, and now the buyers wanted to build one. By the way, I don't believe they ever did. That had to be tough changing course like that from a communication perspective. Sometimes you got to modify your position. By then, it was beginning to come clear that the opposition to the original coal plant initiative, the opposition was gaining there. That bigger issue of securing the necessary state approvals and regulatory steps that had to be taken to secure approval for that, those began to come to the forefront. And as a part of that, then everyone had to modify their their position on some other things in order to advance that cause. That's understanding the reality of how the game changed with the announcement of the buyout. Inside in that war room, Tom, were people frustrated? Did they feel like they were flip-flopping now on a communication message that they'd been working on for almost a year? No, I don't recall it being that way, Jay. You know, you're on the field of play, and now a different play was called. I think people realized that this was a new state of play. We go to work on blocking and tackling for this. The buyout was completed by October of the same year that it was announced. Do you remember any times where it seemed like this whole thing was going to fall apart? I know that there were some rough and rocky times, but I never had the feeling that it was going to fall apart, no. And I I don't know if this is appropriate to say or not, but practically every lobbyist and their mama was working on this on behalf of the company. I always felt like the team would figure out a way to overcome the obstacles. It was bigger than you. (laughs) Yeah, bigger than one person. People don't understand the pressure you're under working on a deal at that level. I remember one of our colleagues worked on the Ford Firestone account and said she was never that stressed. Help us understand some of the visceral feelings going on at the time, especially during the early days of the buyout. It was intense. I mean, we were working on the largest financial deal in the history of finance. 
to this day. I guess having come out of the political world, in that situation, I mean, you know, there's an up or down vote at some point in time. And that creates a lot of intensity and a lot of passion. Some days are just fun as all get out. And some days, man, you go home and you think, oh, my God, I don't know if I can get up and go do it again. It was intense. And it probably was one of the most intensive things that I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of. But it's an adrenaline rush, too. So in the sense of like a political campaign, when it's over with, you're kind of like, oh, well, gee, at the end of the day, you get a chance to look back on it. You're like, well, that's a pretty cool thing to be a part of. I'm not a business person. I don't have the MBA in finance, but you learn so much. And then every now and then you get the opportunity to apply your skill set to say, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't quite say it this way. Maybe we should say it that way. And it results in something that you're trying to achieve. That's a pretty cool thing to be a part of. I remember days when it wasn't pleasant and you're like, man, I can't wait to get back to my hotel room and hide up under the covers. What was it like working with the KKR and TPG team? I mean, these are the highest finance of high finance. These guys are legendary. From my perspective, it was fun to have a seat occasionally at the table where these guys were talking about the issues and trying to navigate the public realm in the political realm while still trying to achieve their business objectives and then having a chance every now and then to say, here's how you thread this needle. That was the role that public strategies was there to play. It's a very unique situation, Jay, if you alluded to this, but we didn't specifically say this. I mean, public strategies was a client of both TXU and KKR TPG. There really were two separate teams. And I worked for the TXU team. And so to be in a position to help both sides thread the needles sometimes that needed to thread, that was our job. That was our role. And to be able to help them do that was fun. How much longer did you stay on the TXU team after the buyout? And what did that look like after the buyout was complete? I believe it was finished in October. I stayed on the TXU team, I think, until sometime in the 2012 timeframe. And the role that I played on an interim basis was as director of communications for TXU Energy, the retail side of the company. It was an exciting time in a lot of respects. They were going through a rebranding process. We were able to announce some price reductions, I think, on the generation side. You know, they were in the process of building three new generation facilities. That was a positive thing for them, too, and particularly at the time when there was such a big price differential between natural gas and coal. We all know what happened to Energy Future Holdings. They filed bankruptcy in 2014. You said you were there until 2011. There was already speculation that EFH was in trouble by 2013. Were there signs that things were not moving along like they had hoped, even in 2011? Well, when gas prices began to, to fall and you knew the debt load that the company had, yeah, there were, clearly were signs that over the long haul, it wasn't sustainable. You know, the credit card had been run up and it was a heavy, heavy load to carry. Operationally, the company was fine and it was sound, but the debt that it was carrying was clearly not sustainable. One of the things that I think TXU got hammered for is this idea that they didn't foresee the fracking revolution. Natural gas prices dip so far and they bet on coal. And But I would say that TXU, even though they had analysts who probably saw that they were beginning to frack even a county over, I don't think they saw that fracking was going to bring prices of natural gas down to $2, when I think at the time it was over 5 
No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that their view at the time was that, that the gas price was going to stay at a much higher level. So to wrap this up, Tom, what is the compelling hook here on this story? Oh, my God. I'm the worst hook man ever. You're short-selling yourself. You're not. That's not true. If you are interested in energy, to me, it's one of the most fascinating stories because it is a big old rock that was dropped in the pond that produced a lot of ripples, right? One of the ripples that we've talked about is the setting up of a policy issue between consumer pocketbooks versus the environmental and the health issues. And if you look at that from a political perspective, it actually drives a wedge between liberals because they're for the little guy and the pocketbook issues, but at the same time, they're strong on the health and the environment side. From a business story standpoint, largest equity buyout in the history of them, and it ultimately failed under its own weight. And that underscores something fundamental to anybody and everybody that has to deal with money, whether it's around the dinner table or the conference board. And that is the consequence of taking on too much debt. Some of the issues that we were talking about, not foreseeing the impact that a new technology of fracking would have. We thought we were forever going to be dependent on Middle East oil. or we're not so much these days, right? The beginning of that story is intertwined with this story and making a bet on that price differential between natural gas and coal. Speaking of coal, Tom, do you think that the TXU expansion and buyout changed the nation's perspective on coal? Absolutely. You know, I said this earlier, it put a target on their back and it gave those larger national groups. It was environmental defense and I'm getting the other key player. It gave them their Goliath and they used it and they were very smart about it. Look, here's another angle to this. What role did the gas boys play in this? Because they felt threatened by this. If anybody felt the most threatened by this, it was the guys in the gas industry. I mean, when I first got involved in the energy business, the unspoken rule was fuels don't attack fuels, right? Well, for the first time, the natural gas guys in the form of Aubrey McClendon, God rest his soul, they attacked coal. I don't know what ties all those threads together, but from an energy standpoint, this is a very, very significant story and occurrence. There's so many ripple effects that came out of this that kind of keeps rippling. Tom Stewart, thank you so much for your time. You bet, Jay. I'm happy to visit with you. There you have it. That was my conversation with Tom Stewart, former managing director for public strategies, a public affairs company based in Austin. Full disclosure, Tom was one of my half dozen supervisors during my time at PSI, and I always considered him a supportive figure in a shop that was filled with a ton of assholes. He was the exception to the rule that you can be both classy and professional in a high-stakes setting. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. You can reach me at energy and check out pictures from the podcast at Host Energy on Instagram. That wraps up my second interview in this series. Please join me next time when we get the media's perspective on the story from one of the reporters who covered it closest. I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.